This morning our scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Our scripture reading starts at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, and then we'll be reading through chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we continue our series in uh, 1 John. Uh, and I debated, given the current state of things, to uh, take a detour into another passage and, uh, that spoke to our current crisis and situation. But then as I looked at our passage for this week, and First John really overall, it speaks directly to a church that was going through a crisis, like we are now. A church that was rattled, in their context anyways, by people that had left the church uh, that were contradicting the apostles' teaching about Jesus. And I thought, you know, this book is actually just what we need right now in its encouragement, in its comfort, in its emphasis on Jesus and his work. Um, Well, last week uh, we made the case that in verses 1 through 4, complete joy is possible. And that's really John's purpose for writing this letter, that complete joy is possible even in the the midst of of trials and crisis. And that's why this book is um, so relevant and pertinent to our situation right now, because um, we need joy right now. We need hope right now. In fact, hope instead of fear, hope not fear has been our church's theme uh, in this last week and some of our social media stuff and scripture reading and worship stuff you've been seeing coming out uh, from us. And this joy that we talked about last week is comes from, we've heard, fellowship with one another and fellowship with God. But this fellowship with God uh, wasn't just having the right beliefs about God. It started there, if you remember last week, or just having the right morals or just being a good person, but actually fellowship is deeper than that. It comes from communing with God, having a deep, even you might say experiential even, experience with God. Even a type of relationship with God that's full of exchange, really truly knowing God on the objective, but also a subjective experience with him. And I wonder this week, as uh, we uh, talked about that last Sunday, if some of you began to think, wow, John talks boldly about this joy. And I wonder this week, uh, some of you thought, you know, and, and Paul as well, his, uh, his verses that speak of joy, and you, you thought, you know, I don't feel like I have that. Why don't I have that kind of joy? 
And, you know, in fact, Jeff, I'm anxious this week. Have you seen the grocery store shelves? And and I'm lonely. Or maybe you thought, you know, I'm lonely this week. I haven't even been outside. Where is that joy? Or I'm fearful this week. What if I get the virus? Where's my joy? You know, and if it's so available to me, like John said, complete joy, why do I not have it? Well, beginning in verse 5 in the rest of the letter, John wants to show us the things, the obstacles that get in the way of this complete joy. And he begins today with the foundation, the beginning of our faith. That's God. John is interested as well in what we think about God. What we think about sin and darkness and how that gets in the way of our joy. And he knows we will never have an accurate understanding of sin and darkness or an appreciation for salvation in Christ unless we first know that God is light. And really, this is what gets in the way, darkness, sin, when God is light. That's what gets in the way of our joy. So hopefully you got your outline. We sent it in an email last night to you. If you didn't, you can, you're probably on a screen right now where you can get to email as well. If you didn't already see that and download it, our outline is there in your all-church email in your inbox right now. Uh, hopefully you got that or printed it out and you got your scripture open uh, as well. We're going to look at three priorities today that will move us closer to joy. And they're, they're logical in order today, not in order of importance, as you'll see, but just in the, the logic of their order today. So let's look at our first priority. Here it is. Our first priority is what God says about who he is. So what God says about himself. You know, John's giving pastoral guidance today. He's a pastor. He's writing to people that he loves and cares about in the church. And so he's got this pastoral heart. You know, he says, if you want to have joy, if you want to have fellowship with God, you have to start with what he says about himself. And this is what he does in verse 5 of our text. He says, remember, I'm an eyewitness. I heard a message from Jesus. And it is my job to pass it on to you. And this message is about God. It's the first word of his message, God. He says, God is light. I mean, it seems obvious. God is the beginning of the message. But it's not so obvious. It's not so obvious to us. God is the beginning of the message. Not you, not I, not even your problems, not even your insecurities. The beginning of the message is God. The answer to your lack of joy, John wants us to see, starts with God. I mean, this is how the Bible begins, doesn't it? Think about our Genesis series. In the beginning, God. What John is getting at here when he says this is he begins with God. He's saying you can't understand the world even apart from God. I mean, you can't even know yourself really, truly, apart from knowing God and who he is in his character. In fact, you know yourself to the degree you know your maker and who he is and and then what he desires and demands and wants for us. It's the reason the gospel begins with, with God, because that's really what John is giving us today, the gospel. The reason it starts with God and not your problems is really that that all of our problems come from being too self-centered, being too self-absorbed in our own life. Remember the Garden of Eden. 
Adam and Eve are there. And, and the words are, take this fruit and you will, you will be like God. We want equality with God in our natural state to be as easily grasped as plucking a piece of fruit from the tree, as if that were, were possible. So God starts the gospel with himself because the gospel itself, the message of Jesus, demands that right from the start, we turn from ourselves. Right from the beginning, that is the gospel. It is God. You know, Francis Schaeffer, he had this great quote, famous quote that he said, if he had an opportunity to share the gospel with uh, uh, lots of people, he said this, if I had one hour with every man or person, I'd spend the first 45 minutes talking to them about God's law and the last 15 minutes talking about his great salvation. What's he saying there? I guess you could put it in other words. He was saying, I would start with God's law, which really is an extension of his character, who he is. I would talk about who God is for 45 minutes. I would start with God. Then, the, the, the last 15 minutes, then I would give him the good news. If you come to Christianity or God by what you first and foremost get out of it, you will not find it joyful. Because life is hard. And the Christian life of discipleship is, can be very challenging. I mean, you might find it useful until it doesn't give you what you want. If you come first and foremost for yourself. We have to come, as John is saying here, I have the message, God, we have to come to God on his own terms. Whether you're coming to him for the first time or you're coming back to him as a lifelong believer. I mean, that's the definition of God. He gets to define. He, 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 he is reality. He declares right and wrong. He made us, not we ourselves. Do you want joy? Do you want to get out of your darkness? Here's what John is saying. Start with God. And when we do, what do we see? Here's what he says. He is light that delivers us from darkness. God is light, John writes. It's, it sounds like a simple message. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, he says. Well, that means that if God is light, if that's how John's defining him here, then the opposite of that must be our problem, right? If God is light, then darkness must be our problem, must be what we, we wrestle with. We really want to have joy and fellowship. I know you do. Whether you call yourself a follower of Christ today, you want joy in your life. We want joy and fellowship even, even with God, maybe our maker. But if we are in darkness, John is saying, we cannot. You cannot have that fellowship with him. You know, the truth <coughs> that God is light is very prevalent in scripture in the Old Testament. I think it's uh, almost 300 times uh, it's mentioned about him in the Bible. Uh, you know, we have ver think of verses Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Or Isaiah 63, nations will come to your light and kings to your brightness, to the brightness of your radiance. It's all over the Bible. God is light. And when it speaks, the Bible speaks of God as light, it really speaks of his, his moral perfection, his holiness, his transcendence, you might say, his, his purity, his grandness and character and, and who he is. I mean, it's his character. God is light. But here's the thing. And here's why it's a problem for us. 
Here's why it's a problem for you that God is light. The world we inhabit is darkness. The Bible speaks many ways of darkness, and sometimes it speaks of a dark mind, which would be a confused mind. A, a dark soul, it, it, which is in, in hopelessness. A soul in hopelessness. Dark desires, the Bible speaks of, which would be evil and, and lust and, and violence and, and wickedness. I mean, this is the state of the world we lived in. But here's the challenge for us. We've lived in it so long that we get used to it. Kind of sedating us, kind of numbing us. I was listening to one sermon this week who said, he had this same idea and he said, if you were to ask a fish, what is water? And they would say to you, what's water? <laughs> or tell me about water. They'd say, what's water? Unless that fish had had a very traumatic experience. I think you know what I mean, Right? And it relates kind of to us. We've only lived in this dark world. I mean, and it's in one sense, that's what we're born into, and that's all we know. That sometimes we forget it's dark. Unless a traumatic experience wakes us up and shocks us. What we have going on right now in the world is one of those traumatic experiences, reminding us we live in a dark world. And, and if there's any silver lining to this virus, it's that it has given us an opportunity to hold the world up to who God is. At a time like this, I don't think it's very hard to make the case that the world is dark. I mean, think about this. An, an invisible virus that's so small it's it's, we can't see it with the eye is crippling the world. I mean, think about that. Is there an example of darkness or brokenness in the world other than what we have going on right now? And what it's doing is it's stripping us bare. It's unveiling our weaknesses. It's unveiling our brokenness. It's, it's showing us uh, our mirage of self-sufficiency and, and, and independence that we love to think we really truly have. And it's making us all, I think in a good way, feel very small. Not only on a personal level, but a grand world scale level and here's the thing each and every human you would ask would know deep down in their heart would know it's not supposed to be this way so that's, that's why we fight against it that we seek for cures so we help out our neighbors and we know it's not supposed to be this way the world is broken and yet everyone is asking wait a minute wait a minute how can this happen like we're shocked how can this happen it's reminding us we are frail we thought our things, our way of life, our life itself was permanent, would never go away. But here's what we're seeing. It can all be taken away from us in a matter of days. Is there a greater example right now than the world is broken? And your neighbors know that. It's a perfect time to, to speak of that, to talk of that if you're over the fence with social distancing, right? <laughs> but it's, it, it's, it's obvious right now. Everybody knows this is wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. But God is light, John tells us. He has a way out. And light destroys the darkness. This is the gospel. God is light. But you have to take him on his own terms. As he reveals himself as light, and this world as broken. 
But here's the thing. John gets that next in these verses. It's not just this world that's broken, as we see in a virus, things like that, but it's us too, which leads us to our second priority. Our second priority is what God says about our sin. It's what he says about himself for our first priority. Our second one is, the, this passage tells us, our second priority is what God says about our sin. That's a word that's not very popular today. In fact, it's hard to find in most places outside the church, and maybe it's hard to find in a lot of churches. I don't know. But there is a darkness, too, not just about the world, but about our own hearts and our own selves. How do we know this? Here's some questions. Why do you treat people poorly sometimes? Why do I do that? Why are we so afraid of, of death? Why do we tend to want to put ourselves first? Like I said, this world, like a fish in water, we've lived so long in the darkness that we can become fooled even about ourselves. And John says in the passage, you can deceive yourself about yourself. I'm just a fish. Yeah, I swim in water. You know, somebody maybe said, you know, that's just the way I am. That's just the way I'm wired. You know, that's just me. You're getting the real me here. That's just me. And some of our darkness for some of us has become so habitual we can't even see it anymore. Maybe it's the harsh tone you use with your wife. You can't even hear it anymore. Your wandering eyes, lustful eyes that you don't even notice anymore that you're, you, they're wandering everywhere. Sarcastic tone maybe that's just your normal tone now with your children. Maybe it's the way you resent your coworkers or your boss or the way you, as a child you roll your eyes back at your parents. It's so habitual maybe you don't even notice it. Look, here we see, John starts with the news that God is light. He is holy. And he will not, that means, and cannot accept evil. It would be, uh, it would be totally contrary to his character, his nature. And, and he cannot look on it favorably. He sees it. It doesn't mean he doesn't know us. He does know us intimately inside and out. But he cannot bless it. He cannot look on it favorably. And he cannot accept it into his presence in a relationship. That fellowship John talks about, that John wants us to have. You might be looking at me this morning or at your screen and thinking, this is good news? <laughs> like, this is good news? This is supposed to bring me joy right now? Here's the interesting thing. And it is pessimistic. You're right. But the Bible is actually the most pessimistic book there is but also the most optimistic at the same time because it's honest it's truth it looks at reality as it actually is it doesn't sugarcoat it it's not deceived you're going to find the truth in this book it's honest but it's also got the most glorious answer to our problem of darkness that god is light and like francis schaefer said you have to spend time on the human state of sinfulness. Because if you don't, you will not appreciate the goodness of God, the love of God. You won't even see your need of Jesus dying on the cross unless you understand the light of God, his blazing holiness, his perfection, and our darkness, and what he says about sin. Look at verses 6 through 10 with me. Uh, look down at your Bible there. It's got all these if statements in there. I think uh, four or five of them. If statements in there. 
uh, if you say this, then this, or if you do this, then this. You know, there must have been some who left the church that were saying, um, I have fellowship with God, but their life didn't show it. They were deceived. They uh, said, you know, I've got fellowship with God, but they weren't walking that way, living that way. Or some of them said, you know, hey, now that I'm saved, you know, I, I think I've a, a conquered my sin entirely. I don't think I sin anymore. And John wants to get right to the heart of the matter with us and tell us that what we think about sin, whether you've ever thought about this concept before or not, or think it's totally irrelevant to your life, he's saying what you think about your own brokenness, your own sin, the way you see yourself respond when you know it's just not the way you really want to respond in life or to this virus, this, this trial right now, the anxiety you feel or the, the anger that's coming out of you um, that you know is not right. He says what we think about sin really matters because the consequence of believing lies about sin, about our own heart, John says are, here's they are, what they are. We end up lying to others about ourselves. We end up lying to ourselves and ultimately we end up lying to God if we don't get this right. What could be more serious than that? But we're going to look at it from what John says is the positive angle here for us who want to be those who are honest with ourselves, honest with God, to, to live for him and follow him. And here's what he, John says. The first one is this. He says, practice the truth. Practicing the truth, we're going to call it. Verse 6 says, those who fellowship with God, which is where true joy comes from, they practice the truth. They, they, they walk in it. It's ongoing. It's daily. John says here, you know, there were those that said they claimed to know God in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth if we say this. It's not enough to claim just to know God and to claim to have fellowship with God. John clearly says here, if you say you know God and that you don't seek to really avoid sin in your life, you are lying to others about your relationship to God, John is saying. Those are pretty heavy words. John says that those who have true fellowship, they practice the truth. So take stock of your life. And they practice the truth because they truly know God. And to know God, as we said last week and today, is to love God. And to love God is to love the things that he loves and to live, practice, live for those things. One of those things that he loves, that he calls us to love, and John says in this verse, is fellowship with the church, fellowship with other believers. And verse 7 tells us when we walk in the light, which is our next encouragement, when we walk in the light, practice the truth, we have fellowship with his people. You many times, myself, as I've been in the, the years I've been in ministry, for 15, almost 20 years now, Many times I, I can think of situations and stories with people, myself or others in leadership in the churches I've been in. They have pursued people that have drifted from the fellowship. John talks here. If you walk in the light, you have fellowship with his people. I can think of stories where we pursued people that just kind of disappeared from church life. Um, maybe they were here every, you know, they were here regularly. All of a sudden, they, you know, you're looking, well, where's so-and-so? And it's been a couple weeks and in a few months, and you're like, where, is the, where are they at? And we pursued them and went after them. Sometimes people find it shocking. They find it invasive. Um, but if John, what John says here is true, 
your fellowship with the people, the body, the people of God matters. And in those, those situations, those stories that I have pursued, not always, many times, when I finally get in touch with them or finally hear from through the grapevine what's going on in their life, do you know what I find out? The roadblock that's keeping them from joy, the roadblock that gets in the way from ha- having fellowship with uh, God's people and why they've disappear, uh, disappeared is some unconfessed sin in their life. That's honest. It's true. I've seen it over and over again in the church. Uh, uh, something comes up, they don't want to deal with it. They deny it, and they, and, and they rationalize it. But really, if you think about it, that's what each and every one of us do every time we sin. Sin is really, uh, it's really moral insanity to do what we think we need and want, but it's actually destructive like a cancer in our life, like a virus in our life. Verse 8 says, when we do that, we deceive ourselves and we lie to ourselves when we ignore sin in our lives. When we overlook it, when we let it block us from fellowship with God's people or even more importantly, fellowship with God himself. That's the time we need to run to him, actually. But the enemy wants us to do the exact opposite. Isolate. Pull away from God's people. Uh, Don't answer the phone when you know it's somebody from church. Don't respond to that email or that invite out to coffee. It's exactly what the enemy wants. You know, we tell ourselves it's okay, or we can't figure out why we just don't have the desire to go to church anymore. And John says it right here, it could be unconfessed sin. Or why you can't just shake that icky feeling of guilt and shame. It's possible that John is saying to us, there's some honesty you need to have with yourself. John says that sin gets in the way. If we deny it, if we cover it up and ignore it. And the opposite to walk in light, uh, you know, the opposite, you know, those who walk in light, excuse me, that doesn't mean that if you walk in light, you're one who's beyond sin. Like some of them in the church were claiming, you know, I'm without sin, I'm doing well, I don't have to acknowledge sin, I'm good. That's not the case. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 1. John tells us in that, if anyone does sin, I've got an answer for you. Those who follow Jesus, those who walk in the light, when you do, if you do, when you do, I have an answer for you. You have not gone beyond sin. But a person who walks in the light knows that the light is going to expose some things. Light always does that. Chases away darkness. You know, you go to the mirror and you look and you got one of those magnifying mirrors you look at, you know, you've seen those, you look at it, or a, 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 you know, a funhouse mirror that blows everything up really big, you flash a light on, whoa, you see things in there that you never saw when it was dark or you weren't looking or you're standing back from the mirror. Light shows us our flaws, little imperfections. The light's going to reveal me for true, uh, who I truly am. That's the attitude of a heart, the heart of the person who walks in the light. To walk in the light is to be honest about and not hide who you are from God. He knows anyways. A sinner in need of a Savior. And John writes, when we do that, the blood of Jesus cleanses that person, washes that away, covers over that blemish. We have to be honest about our sin. And the person who is honest continually sees their need, John says here, to confess our sin. Confessing our sins, our third, final kind of subpoint of this second priority. It means to bring yourself to the gospel again. Now, you might see this, you know, think you're a lifelong believer or follower of Christ. You know what? 
I've done that. I've confessed my sin. But this is for the person coming to Jesus for the first time, this idea of confessing sin. This is also for the lifelong believer. Confessing our sin. It means to take the truth of, of your forgiveness through Christ on the cross and run it again through your head and your heart and the grid of your life again and with the shining light of God's word exposed on you like that strobe light and that magnifying mirror. Confessing again. And when we do that, what happens is we find as beautiful again and again the well-known verse. When we do it, John says, we find him faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all blemish, all stain, all guilt, all shame. That's why we continue to confess. Not because it's some work that because we've done the work, God forgives us. No, we do it because when we confess, it's a reorienting of our heart to God and the gospel again. And it shines through us and it fills us with that joy John wants you to have. Now, when people hear this much talk about sin, because, I mean, I think John mentions the word sin nine times in this passage, and when we, maybe when it was read, you're like, wow, how many times are you going to talk about sin? When people hear this much talk about sin, they respond in either one of two or ways, I think. They respond like some did in John's day, uh, denying the severity of sin, saying, I'm without sin now that I'm following God. You know what? I've got fellowship with him. I'm good. That's one way. Or they respond, the second way would be with a, a crushing weight of guilt. Well, I'm practicing the truth. Uh, I, 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 am I walking in the light? Am I practicing it? Am I confessing enough? And my guess is, as John was writing to the church, and I know that a lot of our viewers out there today watching, you would be those who would call yourself a follower of Christ. My guess is more of us fall in the second group. If you're in the first group, you're not even sure about this concept of sin, I, I, I want you to not let this moment pass. Don't waste this worldwide crisis. Look at the world. Look at what's happened. Look at the frailty and the brokenness of sin and the, the, the ever-present nature of death in the world. If you're of that first camp that kind of like is denies this concept of sin, don't let that pass. Don't let this moment pass. Self-examine your own heart and your motives even. But if you find yourself in that second camp today, which is probably more of us, when you heard John say, you know, you're sinful, you're not worthy, you can't fellowship with God without Jesus, you've lived in darkness, and you can't bring yourself out of it, a lot of you probably thought right away, I know that's true. Uh, Yeah, I agree with that. I know that's true. And that's good, because that's where joy and light can finally begin to break in. But a lot of us just stop there. We stop right there with the weight of that sinful truth, or the truth of our sin, I guess I should say. And, you know, maybe even this crisis has brought that little voice out in your head. A voice maybe you've been listening to for years in your life. Maybe for decades as a Christian, that voice starts to nag you. That voice that says, you know, you should already be doing more in this crisis than you are. Or that voice that says, you know what? You messed up again? How could you do that again? And you call yourself a Christian? Or that voice that says, you know, You've been saying the same prayer for years. Do you think God is going to hear you? Or in this time of isolation, social distancing, you're alone at your house 
and nobody sees you. Are you sure even a Christian, maybe that voice says to you at times? You know that voice. And it crushes you. And so a lot of times we respond with, well, I, I better get better at walking at the truth again. I, I better just pull myself up by bootstraps. I better confess again. And that's right where Schaefer's 45 minutes of heavy bad news turns to 15 glorious minutes of joyful news. Once you see the priority of God as light, then you'll have a priority to be honest about your sinful state, which leads to our third priority, logically in order, not of importance, of seeing Jesus. Here's our third one. Our third priority is what God says about Jesus. And this is what takes you into deeper joy, knowing the true state of things, but then seeing that Jesus is the answer. He's the answer to our problem with God is light. He's the answer to the problem of the brokenness of this world and pestilence and sickness and death. He's the problem to the answer of the sin inside your own heart. What does God say about him? Because that's most important. God is first, so what does God say about Jesus? It's not even so much what you say about him, what does God say about him? Look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 with me. I'll read them. I see my little children, I'm writing these things to you that, so you that you may not sin. There it is again. He takes sin really seriously for the believer, the follower, the one who has fellowship with God. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the, it's a big word here, propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's what John, or God says about him that John records for us. Jesus is our advocate and atonement. This is how John wraps up this passage today. He is our advocate and our atonement. You have an advocate. You can, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, that he is, you have an advocate, John says, for your sin. Now, this is kind of a hard concept for us to get. So what is it? An advocate is someone who represents you. They speak for you on your behalf. Uh, they have a relationship with you, some kind of relationship that, with you that whatever they achieve, the advocate, is credited or transferred to you. It's even really like a lawyer. It's like a legal representative in negotiations. Whatever they accomplish, whatever they get, whatever they bring about as your advocate comes to you. You get that. Let me see if I can make this illustration, uh, this as simple as possible with an illustration. With all my recent uh, health issues I've been having, over these last seven or eight, nine months, really, I've been I've been needing lots of medical attention, appointments, and uh, doctor's appointments, and uh, you know, blood work, all kinds of different things. That, you know, you go through a, a battery of tests when trying to figure out what's going on with your body. I've needed all of that, and it has been, I, I'll be honest with you, so frustrating over the past months especially before all this virus stuff hit, it's been so frustrating to not be able to get appointments. It's so much trouble, you know, impacted uh, medical uh, HMO that I'm part of to be told over and over again, uh, I, I gotta wait two months for this. You gotta wait three months for an appointment. You gotta wait two months for this procedure, three months for that pre uh, procedure. You know, when your health is at stake, like you've had, some of you've had health problems and you wonder what's going on with your body. What do you want? You wanna see action timeliness, results, someone to take interest in you. You realize you have a problem. 
you realize you've got something wrong. And in my current state, for a while, I felt like I was just being pushed off. And when it's your health, that's really discouraging and defeating and, and can cause worry and anxiety. But then I found the phone number of a patient advocate, they were even called, at my healthcare HMO. And here's what I did. I, I, I found this number. Oh, patient advocate. Okay, that sounds good. I made a phone call, and, and I explained my situation to this advocate. I explained how long I've been waiting for this and for that. And wouldn't you know it, I had three phone calls that next day. I had two procedures that I was hoping for scheduled really quickly. Why? She was my advocate. And what she accomplished was done on my behalf for me. Now, when it's your health, that's really encouraging. But when you can have an advocate for your eternal life, your soul, your sin, your advocate that takes care of it, that's everything, isn't it? That's life. That's everything. So if Jesus is your advocate, do you know what he's doing up there in heaven for you? Do you know what that means? He's speaking on your behalf. Like a lawyer for his client, really. He's up there pleading with the Father on your behalf as your advocate. But it's not like he's just saying, hey, Father, I know Jeff messed up again. Hey, God, just give him one more chance, please. And God says, you know, okay, for your sake, Jesus, I'll give him one more chance. That's not what Scripture says. In fact, John says here, this advocate, what does he call Jesus? He calls him the righteous one who intercedes. Here's what that means. He's not just saying up there to God, eh, give him another chance. You know, it, it, you just, give, just, just give Jeff one more chance. No, no, no. Jesus as the righteous one actually has a case to make on your behalf because he's the righteous one. Your atonement. It's that big word the ESV says. It calls it propitiation. I was going to put that word up there. But it's like, eh, yeah. let's just call it a little simpler, atonement. That's basically what propitiation means. It means saying this. It means Jesus is saying this. Yes, Jeff sinned again. Ah, but atonement. I've paid his penalty, Father. Remember? I, I, I've soaked up your wrath like a sponge soaks up water. Think about that. A sponge soaking up water. That's what propitiation means. I was going to bring a sponge up here, but I forgot. A sponge that soaks up water. That's what's happened as the atoning sacrifice for you. So he says, Father, it's the law. I've lived the life Jeff should have lived. I, I, I've died the, the death he should die in his place as his advocate, as his propitiation, his sponge that soaked up the wrath, his atonement. I've taken the punishment he deserved. And Father, you can't demand two payments. See, he's the righteous one. He's actually got a case to make. I have atoned for him, for her. So, Father, this now is not just I'm pleading, saying, hey, give him a chance. Father, this is now justice. Justice has been served. Treat Jeff how you treat me. That's what this means. You see how this is so much more than Jesus just saying, hey, give him another chance. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, I'm the righteous one. Justice has been served. Atonement has been done. And here, of course, the father's only happy to do that. Uh, why? It was his, the father's idea to send the son. He's already been won over, actually, is what that means. 
on your behalf. So in the face of everything going on now, as we kind of wrap this up, what do you have to fear if Jesus is your advocate? What do you have to be afraid of if he's your atonement? And the Father is on your side. I mean, to live is Christ. To die is gain. What do you have to fear by walking in obedience and, 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 and keeping the truth when Jesus obeyed perfectly for you on the cross? What do you have to fear giving up in this unprecedented time when maybe you're going to be asked to give up your last gallon of milk for the family next door that's got four kids? When he's purchased an eternity of riches for you. What do you have to fear when that little voice comes back in of guilt and shame and, and taunts you and says, he doesn't hear you? When you have the voice of your advocate ringing in the throne room of heaven for you. What do you have to fear? Not only does he forgive me of that sin, but he gives me that righteousness, the righteous one too. What do you have to fear when you're swallowed up in him, when you're found in him, when you're knighted in him and you say, I am his and he is mine. Don't you see that's how unspeakable, that's how complete joy is available to you and I now. Let me pray for us, and David will close with a song. Father, we want to be honest about you. We want to be real about you. We want to know you for who you truly are, and let that be our compass, our guide point, our um, encouragement to point us to our true state of self and our true need of Jesus. Would you do that for us today? Would you give us hope in the midst of this time of crisis, not fear? Would you let us step out and serve as you've asked us to in, 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 in word and deed, in truth and deed, in love and deed, in light and deed? And may you help us today find more joy, knowing that whatever happens outside, you're the sovereign light of this world who has brought an answer to the darkness in the world and in our hearts. And that answer is the advocate, the atonement, the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. So fill us with joy today. And I would pray, Lord, that we would sing so loud uh, for joy in our own homes that they'd hear our, our neighbors would hear us next door as we close today. Um, we're singing apart, separated, but you hear our voices united as one. Christ, name we pray, amen. Join me as we sing This is Amazing Grace.